Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Sad Times. My name's Kevin. I'm your host. Uh, for those of you who have never listened to Sad Times, here's a bit of a primer. Uh, Sad Times is a show in which we have a guest every week who comes on um, to talk about times when they were sad, upset, angry, um, emotional, and how they dealt with it, and then also how those maybe around them dealt with it. You know, the goal of the show is not to diagnose anything. It's not to, um, you know, judge anything, in, or is it to solve anything? It's just to, to have a, a person come on and be generous with their time uh, and tell their story so that hopefully people who listen out um, in, uh, well, podcast land – I guess that's a place um, will um, maybe feel less alone when they hear something that that, you know, rings true to them. So, um, as you know, we've been having a bit of a, a flux in our sponsors. Uh, but this week we have two sponsors. Uh, our first sponsor um, this week's episode is brought to you by My Hangover. Uh, my Hangover, the thing that is trying to kill me. So thank you, Hangover, for sponsoring the show. And the other one is uh, from the. International Fake Brotherhood of Glazers. Uh, now, they had me read this, which said, uh, do you not know what a glazer is? Well, that's all well and good. Enjoy your windowless buildings, you ingrates. You know, once we're gone, eyes will be the window to shit. It's a little bit bit aggressive. All right. Well, that fake union is weird. All right. So there's our two sponsors. Uh, thank you, as always. Uh, and today we're going to talk with a gentleman named... Sean. Sean, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, how is is your hangover anything like mine? Uh, not as bad. I must say I'm more used to it. I don't know if that's a good thing to admit or not. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, the strains that I have are dealing with the wife that has the hangover. Oh, yeah. That's tough. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I guess we should get out of the way. Sean, you are my brother-in-law. Uh, and so said wife, uh, is my sister until the legal action, uh, takes place where I can separate myself from her. Uh, uh when I did bring it before the court, the court said, well, you're going to have some trouble if she's a doctor. I said, don't worry, she's not. So, um, Moving forward with that. But before we do that, um, thanks for coming on, man, and uh, coming up here to Chicago. And uh, I know we had a good time last night. We're going to have some dinner with friends tonight, uh, but uh, stopping by the studio. So, you know, Sean, since I've known you, uh, gosh, how long have I known you now? Seven years, eight At years? At least, yeah, yeah. seven. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I first knew about you and one of the things that I think comes to the forefront uh, about you is that is fatherhood. Your yeah. father. Um, and I know when you and I were talking before, <clears throat> we wanted to talk about kind of you are uh, – let me know if I'm right on this. You're like a third-generation father, so it's like grandfather, father, you. Correct. Yes. Um, so tell me about your grandfather, and uh, this is on your dad's side? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was on my him. dad's side. Uh, he was a war hero. Uh, fought in World War II. Wow. Uh, actually, I have an old uh, clipping that even – shows that he was one of the highest paid privates uh, in the army at that time because he had so many kids. You were ba you were paid based really? on Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh he they originally they had told him he was too old, uh too many kids, weren't gonna let him sign up. So he actually skipped out of town, went to another smaller town farther away and signed up and was drafted, I believe, in forty three. Oh wow! Okay, so, so yeah. into the yeah, it's simpler times there. You just oh, skip yeah. town, and get drafted somewhere else. There How many kids go. did he have? Eight. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, so it was a big family. Uh, dad was my my father was the third. Okay, uh, in line, uh, two o- older brothers in front of him, and uh, so you know he remembered talking to him. Nothing that he ever would really express to me about my grandfather. So I didn't didn't know a whole lot. Uh, ended up being one of those situations where you know, get a little alcohol in you. You you're a little more open and free mm-hmm. to talk about things. So the only things that he would kind of mention with me were the positives for a while. But then as I got older, uh, a lot of friends that that were my dad's friends, very close friends, mm-hmm. uh, would kind of let me know things that had happened to him. So basically what I had learned is that he was a pretty, you know, my grandfather was a pretty good man, um, hell of a war hero, obviously. But then coming home, uh, experienced what most do at that time, unfortunately, and suffered from PTSD. Which obviously... We did not have a name for then. Right, exactly. Now, shell sorry, shock at that time. Actually, is that what they called a shell shock? Uh, shell shock started the term in World War I. Uh-huh. Uh, and then in World War II, they started to recognize it a little bit more. Okay. Um, but yeah, as far as like the stories of did he ever get help? Did he ever – was he diagnosed? I have no idea. Okay. None at all. And your dad is the third of eight, you said. When when when, when was he born? 1938. Okay, so he would have been about five when his, his dad went to war. So right. does he have like many, he doesn't have many memories of him? Not younger? a whole lot. I mean, he remembered, you know, happy grandpa or dad leaving, uh, going to be back, you know, I'll be back soon. And mm-hmm. uh, they would get leave and come back. But yeah, uh, when the war ended, he was still there through, I think he finally was discharged in 46 was he in the Pacific or in Europe? No, he actually, uh, uh, as far as decoration, he had two bronze stars, uh, purple heart. Wow. No idea how he earned them. We can't find out. I haven't. Um, okay, so he's two bronze stars and a purple heart. Now, purple heart, forgive my ignorance, that means he was wounded in battle, I believe, yeah, right? Yeah, and never even knew how that happened. Okay. So the reason that we don't know a lot is because really if if I talk to my dad or any of my uncles or aunts or anything, uh, they didn't want to talk about him. None of them really liked him. Uh, when he came home, he was not the same person. Very violent, very mean, uh, resorted into alcohol, became big, big part. Ironically enough, uh, despite his alcoholism that he suffered, still supplied food and money for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't a good home to be in. So yeah, that, so I think what you're saying too, is like uh, something that I think we all as Americans or as humans know, you go to war, it's going to change you. Exactly. And we take for granted what these people do over there and what happens to them. Um, and unfortunately it sounds like the best way that he knew how to cope with it was he, he was, he began drinking and he, you said he got mean. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, some of the stories that I had heard growing up, you know, and again, I would hear from my dad's friends because dad obviously would talk to them. I think he had a, a sense, a small sense of honor still that he didn't want to tarnish his father's name by just saying so many negative things to him for mm-hmm. me yeah, or about him for me. Um, so I, I think that was why he held off not telling me much. But, yeah. you know, what I would hear is uh, one of the worst ones was sitting around the dinner table. My grandfather came home drunk. Um, the whole family's around the table. Uh, had no idea what my dad had said, but it was enough that it, made my fa- grandfather punch him square in the face, knocked him out. Uh, he went under the table 
And uh, this is during the middle of dinner. And as his brothers got up to grab him, Grandpa said, don't any of you move. Leave him there. So how old was your dad at this point? 16. And you don't know what was said? And don't he know just what punched was said. Him and, and he went he under even, the table. Like yeah. he was hiding under the table? No, no. Hit him so hard it knocked him oh. out. And he fell down and went under the table. Yeah. And Grandpa, that was one of the stories, you know. You leave him. Uh, second one was, uh, just the violence that he showed towards my grandmother, uh, which was really, really bad. And he would never do anything to my father's sisters, the daughters, mm -hmm. but he would take a lot out on my grandfather or my grandmother horribly. And, so, and then again, there's, uh, I, I'm supposing that they're scared of him and then they have to watch, exactly, um, yeah. him, go through that with your grandmother. So yeah. you're saying physically? Uh, oh, physically, yes. Very much oh, so. That's terrible. Um, so it got to a point, you know, thinking back, watching how my, or thinking about how my dad had to watch all of this happen to his own mother, you know. Mm. Um, the final story that, that I had heard from him was that what drew this, broke the straw on the camel's back for them was uh, was very violent to grandmother one day, drunk, drunk, drunk. Uh, and he, my dad told me this story and said that he and his two older brothers finally grabbed him because they felt old enough and threw him out the house and told wow. him, don't come back until you're sober. And I asked dad, I said, what'd he say? He just laughed at us. Did he try to get back in or? No, just walked off and then he would come back later. But dad said, ever since then, they told him, you ever lay a hand on our mother again, we'll kill you. And, uh, he never did again that they know of, but, uh, until he died in 57, of oh, course wow. of cirrhosis of the liver. Wow. Uh, just yeah. 11 years after he got back. Huh? Yeah. And yeah. now, wow. Okay. So your dad, obviously an unhealthy home to be, uh, raised in, uh, the terror, the trauma must've mm. been, you know, and again, these probably weren't words that they were using back then, but that, that stuff is going to imprint itself on a person. Oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, I cannot imagine okay. what it would be like to see, um, you know, a father hit a, a mother. That's horrifying. So that's just kind of how he was raised, though, right? And, yeah, and I that mean, that's the reality. The reality was, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s, he had other friends whose dads were coming home, uh, maybe not as bad, but still had issues as well. And uh, so it wasn't out of the norm for that to be happening. But, you know, I mean, there was times they were very, very poor, um, I'd heard stories from other people that, you know, grew up in the neighborhood, uh, that my dad grew up in and it wasn't uncommon to see the kids running down the street with no shoes cause they couldn't afford them. Uh, my dad's nickname when he was a kid was rags because the only clothes he got were the leftovers from his brothers. Is this in Illinois? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Champagne. Ah, beautiful champagne, beautiful Illinois. Beautiful champagne, Which Illinois. by the way, that's not spelled like the drink. Thank you. Uh, okay, so your dad goes through that. Um, that's obviously going to affect a person. Certainly, Right, yes. and so we're thinking about fatherhood here. Your grandfather comes home after serving this country. Horrible things happen to him. He is dealing with it um, in, in a not healthy way. Uh, and then that obviously is going to imprint on your dad. So can you tell me how you feel that affected him and his parenting of you? Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you look at his other brothers, and I'm very close with my cousins as well, and we all kind of have this. It's kind of morbid, but it's a uh, a joke. It's it's funny. It's like, well, you know, my dad did this. Well, guess what? My dad did this. You know, even worse to me. Uh, 
My dad smacked me one time. Really? Well, yeah. Well, my dad beat the heck out of me. So you know, you like you would trade like war, war stories. Yeah, because it was it, it. It would feel uncommon if it was only happening to you, but when you're talking to your cousins and they're going, "Yeah, my dad doesn't tell me he loves me either." You know, it's like, oh, makes you okay, feel a little so less I'm not alone. The only one. Yeah. So then you start wondering what the heck they had as as children, and. Uh, uh, ironically enough, despite the fact of what he did to my grandfather or to my grandmother, excuse me, um, my grandfather instilled three main rules into those boys. Mm-hmm. And it was always respect your mother, never lie and never steal. And, that good rules. and that's what I was raised with too. Um, and like I say, it's so funny because here he instilled that in the boys, but Made them watch him beat the living heck out of his own wife. Uh, a horrible example of do as I do, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, coming from that, you know, you kind of wonder what, if you want to have kids, if you're going to be able to have kids, well, how kind of, what kind of a dad are you going to be? And, uh, so then I was born and, um, later on found out that it wasn't, uh, you know, when parents talk to you, it's kind of always uh, a serious point, but it becomes a roundabout joke. Oh, you know, I had to make your dad have a baby. You know, oh, I had to really. Are you saying that your you, dad? The um, sorry that your mom had to talk your dad into have, having yes. a child. Yeah, I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay. Which inevitably? How old were you when you were told that? Probably in twelve, thirteen. Wow. You know, just hell kind of, of a burden. long conversation or, yeah. you know, and they, it wasn't uncommon to hang out with them and their friends who, you know, everything that you did hanging out with friends at that time was drinking. So it wasn't uncommon for to me to overhear my mom saying, yeah, Larry never wanted any kids, but I made them anyway, you know, so. Wow. Jeez. Did you ever, so did you ever talk to your dad about that? No, there's not a lot of talking to dad about personal things. It's just not something you do. Um, I and honestly, I was raised by my mother. My dad wasn't around. He was uh, he was working, but he was also at the working, bar. But uh, uh, if you wanted to reach him, there was the number that I had memorized that I knew where he was at at all times. Yeah, that was it, a bar. It was a bar. Yeah, yep. So he would get off work and. Um, Back in that generation, you know, early 70s, late 70s, it uh, it was a time when you had men coming out of the 50s with their very old ways of thought. And it was, you know, wives don't call you down at, at the bar and I'll come home when I come home and don't check on me and don't ask me. And so when I was growing up, it was, you know, uh, get home from school. Mom was there. Mom helped me with my homework, did everything, cooked dinner. Then you'd be like, okay, is dad coming home? Well, he'll be home when he gets home. And you'd look at this plate with dinner on it, and it'd just sit there. And then he'd come in and not be very good, very, very drunk. Um, Got to stages when I was older. Um, I'm obviously a lot bigger than my father. So Uh by about 12 or 13, I was starting to be able to look him in the eye. And, uh, was that terrifying at first? It, everything about growing up around my dad was terrifying. Um, you didn't want to be too loud. You didn't want to piss him off. Um, it wasn't the fear of 
getting your ass beat. My dad was not physical when I was young. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just so intimidating with his voice. Uh, the best way I can put it is it was growing up with John Wayne. I mean, the John Wayne character of, uh, you don't, you don't cry. You don't show emotion. Um, crying is weak. Um, just, uh, very intimidating man, very intimidating, and always had the reputation as well through the town and the area that you did not mess with him. Oh, he had a reputation in town about. I guess what you're saying is like was. a kind of a, a temper and. Oh yes, um, yeah. And by the uh, way, uh, we don't call him John Wayne on this podcast. We call him by his real name, which is Marion. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so and you so, had like a Marion household. Mm-hmm. Yes, but and, no and emotions. No, no, my. I've I've grown up. I'm 52 years old, and my mother still doesn't tell me she loves me. It's just something you accept and you learn. You know, she also does. your mother. Yeah, my mom's my mom's about as tough as my father, if not tougher. And it's not in a mean tough. It's a tough of if I'm going to be married to this man, I got to be tough. <laughs> so, um, did you see a lot of tenderness at all between them? No, no, no. No. Um, and if you ask my cousins, um, one of my uncles, uh, I have three cousins and, uh, well, from this one uncle and, uh, all three of them will admit that they have never in their lives heard him tell their mom that he loves her. They've never seen him kiss, hold hands. So I think coming from my grandfather, it really screwed them up. They did not know how to love. They didn't know how to show affection. Mm -hmm. Um, they were basically raising each other because my grandmother had to work all the time. Was your grandfather working? He would when he could. I heard later on when he got older uh, and things started to get bad that he was you know, too drunk to work, mm-hmm. uh, couldn't go. Uh, at the beginning, it was almost admirable of how he could handle that and then go to work. But it started just to take over him and he didn't. Didn't okay. go. So then you see my grandmother working, you know, to support eight kids in a three bedroom house. Imagine trying to live in that. Two of them being sisters. Oh, so it was six boys and two girls? Yes. Okay. So yeah. you had said about 12 or 13, you were, you were able to look your dad in the eye. And you're already telling stories, but you and your cousins are kind of, mm-hmm. sounds like telling stories about, oh, well, my dad did this or he doesn't yeah. say that. So can you tell me an example of when you finally. Uh, for lack of a better term, stood up to him and kind of what what led to that and then what what happened? <clears throat> um, teenage arrogance. You get to a point where you feel, I could I can stand up to him. He's not that big of a guy. Mm-hmm. But then I, I always reflected back. It wasn't about size. I mean, he always scared the crap out of me. Um, to this day, I wouldn't want to be hit by him, to be honest. Did he hit you, though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we had we had our issues. Um but it was never, you know, wake up in the morning, shut up boy, smack you in the head. It was coming home seven, eight o'clock at night, shit faced. What are you still doing up? And just it was instigating uh that would happen. So when I hit teenage years, I remember my mother, uh when my dad would pull in the driveway. She would just almost go into tears and beg me, please go to your room. Just go to your room, pretend you're asleep. Because she knew that as soon as he came in, he would want to either pick a fight with me, start shit, 
see how tough I was. That was his John Wayne. That was his idea of how to raise a boy is that he was toughening you up for the world in his mind. He thought he was sure. Yeah. So that's where it came into, you know, you don't cry. You don't show emotion. You don't show affection. Um, Become a robot basically. And that's his view and idea of a man was, um, you know, and, and as I said, uh, even being raised by my mother, you'd think I'd be a mama's boy, but my mother didn't say I love you and I didn't get hugs. And do, you, do you felt like she was in some way protecting you at times? Oh, very much so. I uh-huh. mean, especially with the, the ideas of, you know, please go to your room. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, w- he got so bad drinking. Um, uh, the joke, the running joke with everybody was that his truck knew how to get home because there were many nights that he'd pull in the driveway and you're like, okay, is he coming in? No, he passed out in the truck. He's able to make it from the bar to the driveway, but he can't get out of the truck. Would he stay the whole evening in the truck? No, I'd go out and get Oh, him. you'd get him. Yeah. So 12, 13, pulling your dad out of the front seat of a car, piss-soaked pants. Yeah. It's not something you like bragging about or talking about very often, but um, it's good to get out. Yeah. Would he, when you would have to do that, would he Didn't challenge ever, you then? No, no. He was so out of it okay. at that point. Um, it was the nights that he was sober enough that he could stand up, you know? Um, this is, I just want to ask, and I'm not trying to drive a point home. I just, this was pretty much every night. Yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, um, my dad drank every day. Yeah. Every day. And ironically enough, I would look at him now and not say he's an alcoholic. Uh, he drinks casually, occasionally, knows when to stop. But back then, he did not. And that's all he did. Um, it was every day. I mean, I remember when I was so little, I was probably six or seven years old, he would go stir crazy sitting at home on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and I'm leaving. My mom would, well, you need to spend time with Sean. Fine. Get in the car. And what'd he do? He took me to a bar. So, I, and how old are you at this? Like in this example, six to eight, nine, oh. ten. 10. Yeah. Through a, quite a few years when I was a lot younger. And then when I hit, you know, into my older teenage years and stuff, it was stay away from each other keep your space, didn't want to take me anymore. Um, What would you do at the bar? You were supposed to shut up and be quiet. You were allowed one Coke. He would buy my lunch. I could play shuffleboard. Oh, okay. But uh, make shuffleboard last. Don't bug me too much. Um, Some some real quality time. Yeah, 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 you know. Uh, And don't forget how often he told me he loved me in between those Mm -hmm. two, yeah. So, uh, but as a kid, you don't know any better. So when I was experiencing that, I thought, this is awesome. I'm, I'm with my father. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at a bar. All I'm asked to do is just not bother him and, and be kind of quiet. It's kind of cool. He's taking me these places and I can, you know, have a Coke and I can, uh, get eat, a free lunch. A, yeah. Get a free lunch and a greasy cheeseburger. And, but yeah, when you get older, it's like, my God, I would never do that. Yeah. yeah. And in, I, I think a theme that's going through here along with fatherhood, right? And something you said, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, maybe is, um, you know, it wasn't much to do. So you drank. That's, that's how you pass the time. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, uh, so now you're in your older teenage years, we're getting into your early twenties. Um, uh, you know, anybody who's ever been to central Illinois, 
uh, it's God's country. <laughs> no, it's it's beautiful. It's very very flat. Um, but it 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 does foster like boredom. Oh yeah, unless you really enjoy watching corn. Um, corn or porn. I, at this point, since we're referring to Illinois, I'm going to stick with corn. Okay, gotcha. C-O. Yeah. All right. Uh, so not the band corn? No, that's a K. Yeah, darn right. And a backwards R. Uh-huh. And where a lot of my high school anger went. Okay. So in your early 20s, another thing in central Illinois is we have the seasons. We have all the seasons, and sometimes uh, we have a fuck ton of snow. <laughs> and I know that <clears throat> in your early 20s, as pretty much anybody would do, I think. You're out raising hell, drinking some beers with friends and stuff. And uh, I know that you and I were talking about um, it's snowing, you're drunk, there's hills. You know it's flat, there are hills, <laughs> usually slide. on the golf courses. So you got to go sledding. So That's I know right. that you went sledding one night. Uh, how old were you? I think I was, we were right about 22 or 23 at the time and uh, had the mentality of, 18-year-olds who really um, had a Super Bowl party. A good friend of mine that uh, he and I worked together for a long time. I got him a job where I'm working, and um, we were we were inseparable. We were really close. And um, so I had a, a Super Bowl party, and we all just got shit-faced, decided that it'd be a great idea since there was a blizzard that we go sledding that night. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we went uh, went out to uh, Big Hill, and we're going downhill and having a good time. And um, I had to let my buddy borrow my jacket because you know we weren't anticipating doing this, so he didn't have it with him. And we're going down the hill, and so it gets boring to sit on a sled and just go down it. So yeah, at one point, <laughs> don't do it the right way. Right? I mean, you got to be as dangerous as possible. It's the only intelligence people can show. Yes. So I went down once on my back head first, which means you can't see anything, and oh, came geez. back up to the top of the hill. I'm like, hey, bud, this, this is awesome, man. You got to try it. No, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. No, oh, man, you got you, you got to go down. It's, it's great. All right. So we both get on the sled. He gets on his back head first. I'm on my stomach head first. I got a hold of his, my jacket that he's wearing, and we go down, and we're flying. And at the end of the hill, they had tractor tires that were half buried. So you'd just see the half moon of a tire, so, which means you could, you know, if you did it right and you stayed low, you could go under them, which is what we were trying to shoot for sometimes. You're trying to go through the tire. Yeah, yeah. I see. Oh, it's like an obstacle course. Right. Yeah. So Mark Summers. <laughs> so we got to the bottom, and um, I, I don't know why I did it, but I let go of them. And, um, I shouldn't have done that because holding on to him was his only reassurance of safety. You know, um, I was his crutch. I was his safety. And I let go. And um, he went into a tractor tire and it snapped his neck and immediately broke his neck. And uh, we didn't know it. You know, we're drunk. We're laughing. I looked down at him. He's still laying there and he's halfway under the tire. And even he's kind of snickering a little bit, and he says, I, I can't feel my legs. And me and another buddy, oh, you're just messing with us. And we grabbed his legs and yanked him out of there, which probably made matters worse. Uh, and then noticed his hands were in a frozen position, very crimped, mm -hmm. and um, said, oh, shit, this is serious. So he really did. 
Did you call a – well, I mean, you didn't called, have a cell phone. I mean, so you found a phone. Yeah, I went and uh, uh, by the – it was luckily in an area where there was a neighborhood not far, ran to a house. Another person did. I stayed with him, uh, called an ambulance, and they came and got him. And I think from the day that that happened, uh, I spent about a year with him every day trying to – Hope that he would get better. Do you mean like you were at the hospital with him? Yeah. Yeah. I was at the hospital with him that night. Um, they couldn't get a hold of his mother. Um, he was from a very small town, quite a few miles north, which would have taken her about 45 minutes to an hour to even get there. Okay. So I was the only one with him, the only one that he had. And uh, I watched them put the halo on his head. Um. I had to kind of be the person to answer questions for the doctors Mm because nobody else was there. Mm -hmm. Held his hand through the whole thing. Um, When he got out of that, uh, the next following few days, he stayed in the hospital, and then they transferred him to a special place up in Chicago uh, for people that have suffered these things, and they go through a rehab. and. They're very good about being very positive. You know, there's nothing saying you're not going to walk out of here. There's nothing saying that we're not going to get your hands to working again. And um, it was bad enough to watch him go through being so confident and so self-assured. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to walk again. You know, they're telling me I'm going to. And, you know, I was only supposed to do um, eight reps of this today i did 10 you know yeah um he was just so driven and had such a great attitude um love and admire him to this day for what he did because i know i know i couldn't have been that strong there's no way so he Um, he survived then he did survive yes but uh, unfortunately never walked again and does not have the use of his hands to this day um you know, uh, another thing about Central Illinois, I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but it, it's it's really just a bunch of small communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it uh, the communities take pride in themselves, and, and they have gathering places, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that your family, your parents were really involved in the American Legion. I believe right. they still are. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so I know that shortly after – so you – this is one year that you're with this guy basically every day. Um, did, did that affect your job? Um, my job was very understanding about it. I would come in and work three to four days a week just to try to keep a check so I could pay the bills. Mm-hmm. But then every weekend that I wasn't working, I was spending the gas money to go up and sit with him and hang out with him. Uh, even <laughs> we snuck him out one night, me and another friend oh, drove really? up and... <laughs> Um, asked him how he was feeling. He said, I'm doing a lot better. I said, well, let's get you out of here. Oh, man, we can't do that. And I said, yeah, we can. So there's a wheelchair right there. So grabbed the wheelchair, and we threw him in the wheelchair and took him to Dick's. Dick, 
the restaurant. Dick's Last Resort? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's good. Well, I'm sure that they were very nice to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he loved it. It was a great time. Oh, that's, um, oh God. He's, I bet you he thinks about that all the time. I hope he does. I that's do. That's wonderful. Um, that's one of the things that is very difficult for me. I don't want sympathy for, and I don't ever want anybody to feel bad for me for. Um, I have a lot of guilt. I have a lot of pain that I deal with with that because I was basically self-assuring myself by being with them every day that this is all I can do because it was my fault. And, and growing up in, in the environment that you did, especially in the, the Marion, I mean, John Wayne way hmm. of uh, you don't show emotions, you exactly. don't feel, you don't this. So there had to be a, a, an immense conflict within you that you are overwhelmed with guilt. Uh, you're overwhelmed with the pain of this emotion. But were, were you trying to be like, but I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't need to express it. I shouldn't express it. That type of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. By that, by that age, um, it had already been bred in me by even my mom. Um, you don't cry. You, you just hold it in. What, what's wrong with you? Um, and I have anxiety. I never knew I had anxiety until I met your sister. I, yeah, she I causes was, me anxiety too. <laughs> I was never diagnosed with it. I yeah. was just, I would have these episodes as I was growing up. And my episodes, when I would have an anxiety attack, it was, I don't know to this day why, but it brings tears. It brings out this emotion for me that as my heart's racing 100 miles an hour and I'm stuttering and I can't talk, I just, I cry. And I remember as a kid, you know, getting in a neighborhood fight and I won and I, I, I won and I came home. But as I'm walking home, something, I don't know if the anxiety of it all hit me and my, you know, my heart rate was up and, and I was so tense and I walk in and I just saw my mother and, you know, I had one cut and some scratches and stuff and I just cried. I just started bawling and my mom, you know, not, What's wrong with you? Are you okay? What the hell is wrong? What are you doing? Why are you crying? Well, I just got in a fight. Okay. Are you hurt? No. Well, then, then knock it off. That that was my mother the whole time that my dad was gone. And I, I don't, I don't want to ever, ever make anybody think that uh, my mother is anything shy of being an incredible woman. Mm -hmm. um, I think that she felt that since my dad was never around, she had to take the the responsibility of both parents. So she had to be that dad, too. Mm -hmm. um, and so her generation of growing up and what she grew up with as well, her grandfather wasn't the nicest. You know, he's a very tough old man. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made her hard too. So I grew up with very tough parents that instilled in you that if you needed to cry, you go to another room. Um, and then, then you are questioned why you did anyway. Why did you have to cry? What, what's that all about? And, yeah. And what it sounds like to me, uh, and I'm no doctor and neither is my sister, but it sounds like, you know, when you're having the way that your panic attacks present themselves, anxiety attacks, it's like when you cry, it's like your body saying, get this out of me. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting to hear that you stutter during panic attacks because I do too. It, it, 
And it's like, what is going on here? Yeah. And, and I can't say words. And um, it's so frustrating. It's overwhelming and awful. And, and honestly, uh, the only way that I've been able to, in my last few years, finally understanding what I was going through, because I never did, you know, I mean, all through life, ever having this happen, if it was around my parents, it was always, what the hell's wrong with you? What are you doing? Knock it off, you know? Um, not, are you okay? Maybe we need to find out what's going on. No, it was just, knock it off. There's no reason to be doing that. So, yeah, and, you know, so this happens with your your friend, and he has the accident, and as you said, he, he never walked again. He's still living, right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. You went to the Legion one night, I believe, uh, where I, I suppose they drink. <laughs> yeah. 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 That uh, earlier when I said that uh, I had a number memorized in my dad's uh, second home, that was it. It was the Legion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you went in there shortly after this accident, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, the Legion was my other life. Um, I spent many a nights down there at a table full of smoke and beer and and people talking and cussing and telling stories and you silently sat there unless they could give me a babysitter and then they left me at home, you know, so. Yeah, but you get a free Coke. You got it, but you only get one. Yeah. Only one a night. So you're, this is your early to mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and not long after this. Um, if, if my timing's correct, please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very long after, uh, it, the incident had happened. I had been going up to Chicago and, and visiting with my buddy and I'd come back and I think we were probably six months into it and coming into the realization that still being up there, he was not going to walk again. Um, so I was going through a lot for myself because, I, I, I want to express that there's no self-pity here whatsoever. I do not feel sorry for myself. If I say that it's my fault, it's because I know it was, and it's something that I have to deal with. Um, I don't want pity from it. But it was very tough at that time because I so badly wanted to cry. I so badly wanted to to find somebody that, that loved me um, that I could affectionately and personally talk to and let this out and not make me feel bad about it or condemn me for it. And so I was holding it all in and uh, went into the Legion one night and my parents were there and all their friends are about the same age as my parents. And of course, I've been there so long, they're my friends too. Sure. And uh, one of them had a little too much to drink and didn't realize that he wasn't being funny and said something about, yeah, I heard, you know, your parents said that uh, uh, your buddy broke his neck. And I said, yeah, yeah, I heard it was your fault. Ha, ha, ha. And I didn't know if I wanted to cry or if I wanted to punch him. Mm -hmm. And respectfully, Jesus. I chose to cry instead, and I just couldn't hold it. It just hearing that, you know, I mean, if if you have it in your own brain and it's eating at you this much, and then to finally have somebody tell you that, even though he didn't mean it directly, I took it directly. It's like somebody's mm -hmm. finally telling me, not just me, but somebody else outside of my box is letting me know that it was my fault. They're, I, they're affirming your worst fear. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just couldn't hold it. I didn't want to. I just couldn't hold it. And I started to, to break, um, not heaving, crying, and 
shoulders hunched, but just, you know, tears started to come out. And my dad's most famous pose was to sit back in his chair and cross his arms and puff his chest out. He just looked at me and he says, if you're going to do that shit, get out of here. And that was, I think, the most I ever even talked to my father about the incident. Um, Dad, if it was an emotional discussion, then we avoided that. If it was something that happened to you, I don't need to hear the story. Just know that you're going to be all right and you're going to get through it. And that's how you dealt with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by the time I'm hitting my 20s, it's I'm learning you don't hug people. Uh, you don't have to show affection to people. You can tell them the words. Um, don't give away any affection to anybody. So I had, in my early 20s, a very hard callous shell that I wouldn't let anybody penetrate um, until I finally met my son's mom. Right. So here we, here we go. The generations continue. Yeah. Um, and... So you met your son's mom. You guys got married? Yes, we did. Yeah. And, um, how old were you when your son was born? He, I was 27. Uh, so obviously we all know because of uh, Hugh Grant that it, it's about nine months uh, for the gestation <laughs> of the baby. Yeah. Um, during that time, like what was going through your mind as you're getting ready? Now, did you know it was going to be a boy? Uh, obviously not at the beginning, but we wanted to know. So, so then, you found out when you could. Yeah, once we found out. So it was, you know, um, uh, going back a little bit, it's that idea of, okay, I'm married. Now I have to have a kid. And it was the societal strain that they put you on um or that you put yourself through you know i have to hit once i hit this age i have to be married i have yes. to have a house i have to have a car i have to have you know i have to be established did you can i interject though going back to what your mom said you would hear your mom say it wasn't that you needed to be talked into having a kid you just did you want to have a kid yeah yeah at that yeah. time you know by that age i really did and and so immediately when you're married and and you and your wife start talking about children, it's like, oh, God, uh, can I do this? Um, Terrifying. Which everybody goes through. But the worst part is um, it's it's dependent on how you're raised. You know, um, we all say that we want a better lives for our children than what we had. Mm -hmm. So we're going to push them to get that. Mm -hmm. And. So all of these things running through my head, it's like, my God, my, my dad had a shitty childhood. I didn't have the greatest of childhoods. Um, how, how do I do this? How do I make myself a, a good father? Because I knew that if I was going to do this, I was going to be everything but what my father was to me. Mm -hmm. I was going to be around. Um, I was going to be a better man. I was going to let my son cry if he needed to. Mm -hmm. And I was going to let him know that he's not being raised by John Wayne, you know? Mm -hmm. So I had all of these. Maybe Don Knotts? Yeah, that would have been even better. <laughs> I don't know. If, oh, oh, Andy. <laughs> okay, I love Don Knotts. Sorry, go ahead. The one bullet in the pocket. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it was a time that. When I was going through that, uh, uh, 
as much as I was so excited about this, and once I found out I was having a son, family and our name means a lot, and I was raised that way. You yep. know, be proud of your name. Mm-hmm. Be proud of who you are. And um, it was used in a way for me when I was growing up that this is your name, okay? When you go to get that first job, remember that that's your name. Don't embarrass us. Uh, when you go to do things, don't don't make that name look bad, uh-huh. you know? So it became more of a, I have to instill pride in this. I have to, uh, my God, I'm bringing in a, a third generation, you know? Um, so I had so much excitement and so much to look forward to to that happening. And he was born, mm-hmm. 10 pounds, 4 ounces. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Largest baby at that time. Um, Ten pounds? Oh, yeah. You talk about a proud papa. That's oh, I mean, right. Man, dude, standing there and, and looking at all the babies, and you look at him, and he looked like he was already six months old, and he's around all these newborns. And Can you tell me the, what that feels like? And, oh. and, and I ask that because I'm never going to have children. Um, I'm terrified of it. I, I would be a terrible father. It would just destroy me. Um, but I am very interested in what that wonderful feeling must be when you're looking in and say that's my boy oh and and on top of just not not just the feeling that you get from that but standing there and the other fathers are looking at their own children that they just had but then you're over here and i'm going my god look at that kid over there he's a monster you know well, i wonder whose dad that is and it's yeah. like yep that's me yeah that's mine yeah you know and uh from that point on, that boy had always stayed over the charts. I mean, there was no chart that he was in on weight and height at his age ever. So like the 99th percentile oh, type yeah, of deal? Okay. Yeah. So it was always, you know, it's just immense pride and and, and I, I don't know, just overwhelming feeling of, of love and everything that you have. Um and it's like it's something that just hits you when they come out and you look at them. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember when he came out and I held him. Looked him in the eye and I said, I'm your dad. And I'm going to protect you. Sorry. It's no no need to apologize. I'm going to protect you and love you forever. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that can ever take that away. And uh, so you live with that happiness, you know, and, and you look them in the eyes and you know they're so fragile and they're so innocent. And from that day on, Every voice they hear, every action that they see, you're creating. Um, you're instilling in them. And I just fought so hard to not be my dad, um, yeah. to not be that that bad guy. Um, I'm going to love him. I'm going to hug him every day. And even though he's my boy... I got, if he wants a kiss, I'll give him a kiss, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where growing up, I didn't even get that 
from from my own father or right. my mother, you know. I mean, kiss goodnight, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't uh, – we weren't a an affectionate family. Let's put it that way. So when I brought him in, um, this is it. This is my life. This is the only thing that I, I care about in the world right now is this boy. And I'm going to have all of these ideas and, and I'm going to teach him how to ride a bike. And I can't wait until he wants to throw that first baseball or football and everything a father feels. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that every father in the world wants to do with, with having a son. I want to see him score a touchdown. I want to see him hit a home run. I want to see him make that last second shot. All of these things. And then of course it was all taken away. I think it's it's really wonderful what you're what how you're expressing this and it, it's very honest and true and um, full of love and I think it's wonderful. Um, but I do want to ask you. So you, um, you got this giant baby. You got <laughs> yeah. this Paul Bunyan. Yes, and you bring him home. He's got a stuffed baby blue ox. And um, what happens when you get home? Because you did say that you. I think you just. If I heard you correctly, you said, and then I lost him or something. Yeah. Can it, you tell us uh, about how that transpired, please? It's it's difficult for me to this day to know dates and time because um, the one and only time I've ever seen a psychiatrist or talked to somebody, um, I found that uh, what I went through through the divorce once is Mom left. And I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, to retrack, what ended up happening was uh, after he was born, mm-hmm. he had um, upper respiratory problems. Oh. So laying in bed at night, he would just, you know, you could hear him, the, the like phlegm and snot in his chest or in his, and you want him to cough, but he has a baby they don't know to. So it's just there. And had to have a machine to help him breathe and, uh, very sick for a while. And right about that time, um, his mother would just disappear, want to go out. Um, I'm going out. I'll be home later and then not come home. And I'm that home. night. Yeah. In yeah. the night. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, or, uh, I'm going to go see my parents for the weekend. I, I got to get away. I just got to get out of here. I want to go see my parents. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, if that's what you need. I'll stay home with the baby. At that time, like you mentioned, we come from a very small community. So by being in this, I knew a lot of the bartenders, managers of different places. And I got a call one night and they said, hey, your your wife is here with a couple of guys and some other people that I don't know. And she's pretty drunk, bud. You, you might want to get her. So tried calling her to no avail um like i say again just would just disappear wanted to do her own thing so when we were finally able to talk about it and sat down about this um we both agreed on marriage counseling and within just a couple of sessions found that she was suffering from postpartum depression after having wow. the baby um, that has got to be, uh, if I may, that, that has just got to be, I mean, I have no understanding of how awful that would be, f- uh, for a woman to go through. Oh yeah. And it made it very difficult because I wanted to be compassionate and understanding mm-hmm. of what she was going through. But at the same token, 
the way that she handled it was breaking my heart and not there for our son at the time. Um, so it left me to be there with him. And this didn't go on for months or years or anything by any means. Um, it was a s small amount of time that we were going through this and she was telling me then trying to reassure me that, you know, I'm going to marriage counseling when I'm supposed to. Well, then I would get calls from the counselor and he would say, she's not showing up. She didn't. Oh, like her single, like you guys had separate single sessions. Yeah. We had mm -hmm. a couple of, uh, at the beginning with each other. And then he said, I wanted to see, you know, I'd like to talk to each one of you alone. Mm -hmm. And so hers would be scheduled and she'd say she's leaving to go to the appointment. He'd call, uh, she's not here, you know, oh, well, I don't know. All I can tell you is she left to go. And he said, well, she didn't show up, you know, and then she may come home that night. She may not. And so I dealt with that for a very long time. Um, Again, like I say, it sounds ridiculous, but I've blocked so much of that out that I don't know and remember a lot of the exact details. I remember that um, it finally got to a point where it wasn't going to work. Um, she was cheating on me, um, wanted to move out, and so I begged. You know, I mean, I, I spent 20 years being with a – or 27 being under a father that – I wanted to prove that I could be a better one. And now that opportunity is being taken away. Um, I'm not getting that opportunity and that, that you feel like you're left with no choices. Um, and when that was happening, the court systems around here were all about the mother. Um, at that time, we were still stereotyped as deadbeat dads, you know. All you have to do is show up at court and know how much you need to pay your wife or your ex-wife. You know, that that's the only responsibility you got. And I went in and said, you know what? The mom's not around. She acts like she doesn't want to have him. I've been raising him. I want him. Uh, she wants to be gone all the time and not be around. Then I want to have custody of, of my son. And... Um, didn't get a whole lot of support for that because of the fact that if most people knew I wasn't going to win, um, it's just it's almost a losing battle you go through as a as a father. Um, unless my, I'll, I'll give you an example. My lawyer at that time told me unless we can find your ex wife on the corner shooting up drugs and selling herself with your son sitting next to her, you're going to have a hell of a time ever getting him. And my response was, then why did I give you ten thousand dollars? Well, we're well, going. I, yeah. I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Well, we're going to fight it, and I think we stand a good chance. And, uh -huh. You know. And, and how was, old was your son well, at this time? Sorry. That's a good question. Um, it's it sounds like such a weak excuse, but I I, I have to be completely honest. I I don't remember. I I, I wanna, it's just stuff that is. Some things have just been blocked out of my brain. I cannot bring out. I want to interject real fast that um, I, I, I'll go ahead and, and play devil's advocate here and say that's not weak. Uh, not even devil's advocate. That's not weak. That's you're going through traumatic stuff. And, and sometimes the brain blocks that shit out. And that's what the counselor 
tried to convince me of. But mm-hmm. at the time, you know, um, I just remember sitting with her and, and it was actually the reason I sat with her is because on my lawyer's suggestion, um, have your son see a child counselor that will see you as well to discuss and prove that we can bring her into court and say, Hey, he's doing great with his dad. He's not having any issues. Um, I didn't want to take him away from his mom. I didn't want to, there was no anger or animosity. It was more of responsibility. I felt that I was doing the most responsible thing that I could by at that time giving him something that I thought would be more stable than what his mother was able to provide. Um, so it was, it was, it was really tough. I mean, you'd go to court and they would just not, not care about the dad. Um, matter of fact, when it all was, was said and done, um, the judge literally said, I'm old school. I have never believed that a father can raise a child without his mother. And herefore, I say that I will grant custody back to his mother, and you can see him every other weekend. And she immediately moved three hours away from me without asking, uh, went, left the state, went into Indiana, and um, tried to go back to court and say, hey, you know, I thought I had say-so on how far my son could be away from me. Nope. No. Same judge? Same judge, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, you know, you build a lot of anger and animosity towards the judicial system when you find that out. And I mean, I spent, and it's not about the money, but, uh, I'd say close to almost $20,000 to try to just do the right thing at that time that I felt was. And, um, that was a day that beats all horrific days. Um, the day that I was in court, my son was in daycare that I had had him in. He was doing great. Um, the ladies there absolutely loved him. Always had a good time. Um, I'm in court. The judge makes his very asshole statement. Um, then says you have... 30 minutes to get your son, pick him up, and figure out a drop-off place and give him back to his mother. And I had had him the whole time. He was with me. And so for weeks, if not months, I had been raising him on my own, doing everything myself. I mean, I, I did all of this with nothing, nothing financially. I had nothing in the house when his mom decided that she was going to leave me. It wasn't a discussion. Um, I came home one evening to our Christmas tree on its side, turned over. Um, half of the ornaments that were mine from childhood are broken. Everything that belonged to her was gone. Um, my son's crib was gone. Everything. Um, and I walked into not knowing this was going to happen that day, and I walk into the only thing in my son's room was still the cross with his rosary bead 
hanging on the wall over a changing table, and it was the only thing she left me. And um, that that was bad. And it wasn't the only thing she left me because a week later or a couple days later, uh, all of a sudden I had no power. I woke up that morning, and uh, it was January, February, she hadn't been paying the bills, so power company, after five months that I didn't know about, shut the power off. And so I lived with food and snowbanks in my backyard, a sleeping bag, until I could afford a couple of weeks till I could get enough money saved up to get the power turned back on. You know, Sean, I, I just feel an incumbent to just remind you that this show needs to be sad. I know. I'm not um, doing a good job. This of is that. not. Um, I don't know. Brent's over there just uh, crying from laughing. Uh, he can't handle it. Um, did you just say that you put food in snowbanks? Yes. Yeah. Mm. I, uh, in order to have food to be able to eat, because I couldn't afford to even go to the grocery store, I had to utilize what was left in the freezer and the fridge. So best thing I could do was keep it out in the snow. So I remember every morning having to get fully dressed before I could even get a glass of milk because I'd have to go outside and grab the milk, hope it wasn't frozen, have a glass of milk. Um, the other one was then I lost my vehicle. We had both bought a vehicle together. Um, she started planning way ahead of having enough money to leave me. And so she wasn't paying any of the bills. So I had gone out, left work, 3.30, went out to the parking lot and mm -hmm. walked back in. I said, my truck's been stolen. So I call up my ex and I said, uh, I think our truck's been stolen. She goes, no, and very cold and callously like she even expected the call. She goes, no, it's probably been repossessed. I haven't made the payments on it in six months. Okay. Are we going to get it back? No. I don't know. Figure it out. I have my car. So that's what I was left with. No vehicle, no power. Um, again, like I say, once I got all of that established and got back and fought again to try to get custody of him, um, it was just taken away. So going back to the Falling Christmas tree and and coming home to that, I had I had nothing. So, luckily, uh, I was good friends with a guy that owned a furniture store, and he let me have a bed frame and a mattress until I could afford to pay for it. I mean, if I wouldn't have had that, I would never have even had a bed for my own son. Um, which really hurt me because his mom didn't didn't care. And I, it wasn't that she didn't care about me. It's that she didn't care that if he was going to be there, that he didn't have anything. Um, and it just made me feel that she's in her own world. She doesn't care about him. You know, um, I do. Why aren't anybody else seeing this? Why doesn't anybody else understand this? That as a father, I mean, I'm not just supposed to put bread on the table. I can I can give them love. I can give them everything that a mother can. Um, I'll never say that a child shouldn't need their mother, but in a circumstance like that, by God, I was doing it, and I know I was doing it good, and I was doing it right, but um, society and judicial system doesn't believe in us. So, yeah, um, 
So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, moves away. Your your uh, your son moves. You said three hours away, different mm-hmm. state. Um, and then you you had your every other weekend uh, visitation. So the boy grows up. He he's moved away. You have him on the weekends, uh, every other weekend rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know by this point he's, you know he's become a teenager. Time doing what it does. Uh, fucking time. Um, <laughs> Too fast. Yeah. So so all of a sudden, your little boy that you held in that hospital and you looked in his eyes and said, I'm your dad, is now a teenager. Yeah. And it, like I say, it, it's just too fast. Um, for, I would, I'm guessing he was about four or five when this happened and the separation I lost. And from the time that he was four or five until he was old enough to drive, every other weekend I drove to Kankakee, mm-hmm. hour and a half mm-hmm. there, an hour and a half back, mm-hmm. never missed a day, wrote his mother a personal check every week, never missed, never late, never missed a time, never missed a date. I wasn't about to let anyone ever accuse me or stereotype me as a deadbeat dad. Um, so... Uh, as tough as it was trying to still be the dad that I wanted to be, I only had two days, four days out of a month to do that. Um, so the heartbreaks there were coming to visit, and I bought him a new bike, put training wheels on it. I said, buddy, we're going we're gonna to chat to ride a bike. I already know, Daddy. Um, so I didn't get that. The throwing a ball, uh, he'd already been doing that. I didn't get the chance. I threw with him, sure. Mm-hmm. You play catch. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Can I ask you a quick question? When you played catch, and if you dropped the ball, <clears throat> would you have him come and pick the ball up and give it to you? No. Okay, that's just me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I know where that's going. <laughs> um so it, yeah, it was, it was one of those things. You made the best of what you could, um, and and I got to say too, throughout it all, you know, going now into where he is now, um, he is who he is. Um, the majority of because of his mother, um, she turned around, did good for herself, and got back on the right path. Um, found somebody in her life that was kind enough and good enough for my son. I mean, nobody in my mind ever is. He can't take my place. He was good enough of a man to not ever try to claim to. So I didn't have those issues or animosities towards that. It's Mm -hmm. just something you deal with. Um, But going through it for the first time and having to live it, you just, you never know what to expect or, or, what you can do, but you quickly realize just how limited you have, you know? So you spend as much time as you can with your child. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember him being tired and it's like, no, you don't want to go to bed yet. I haven't, haven't been enough with you, you know, stay up, please. And uh, tomorrow I got to take you home, you know? And I remember times we'd be having so much fun on a Sunday. And it's like, well, it's an hour and a half drive. Your mom wants you back by five. We got to leave. And uh, when he was young enough, it was so hard for him. And that's that's what killed me is that none of this sorrow, none of what went through is 
hurts me. What hurts me is what I witnessed my son going through. The idea of, you know, you drive that hour and a half and we pull into the gas station. It's like, okay, buddy, here we are. Um, mommy's right there. No, I don't want to go and scream and cry. And I don't, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave you, daddy. And once again, I just need to remind you that this is sad times. <laughs> I'll try to pick yeah. it up. Okay, so you would you would drop him off, and yeah. you're you're seeing that agony. Oh yeah, of of what he was going through, the poor kid. I mean, to, for it to happen to him so young, to be forced to be stuck in a car for three. You know, I I whine and cry that I I had to drive an hour and a half. My son had to sit in a car for three hours, three hours every Friday and every Sunday. That's right. To be clear, because Kankakee was the middle point. It was the middle point right. from Indiana where they mm -hmm. were living at that so time. So he would get in the car and then drive another hour and a half. Yeah. Well, not drive. Well, maybe he drove. Hell, fuck it. <laughs> uh, drive another hour and a half. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I that that tore me up. And then I had the hour and a half drive home by myself to reflect on what I just watched my son go through. You know, having to hand him over to his mom and not let go of my shirt and screaming and it it wasn't good it wasn't good at all it's it same thing happened you know uh, i don't know where we got lost but i wanted to go back to the day the court decided that i had to give mm -hmm. my son back to his mom mm -hmm. i was told by the court system that i had 30 minutes from the time that i left the court to go pick up my son from daycare, figure out where I was going to meet his mother and drop him off and not know again until they set dates of when I'd ever see him again. And so I go to the daycare. Uh, the daycare providers knew at this school what I was doing that day. And so when I walked in, they could immediately tell on my face that I lost. And I've never, I've never had someone cry for me outside of family because they feel so bad of what I was getting ready to go through. And I just remember Every woman that ran that daycare hugging me, telling me how much they're going to miss him. So, sorry. It's okay. Um, I will say with these breaks that, uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, when it comes to talking about my son, there's no Mary in here. And there's days I wish there was. Right now, I'd make it a lot easier to be able to talk about if I didn't have to pause like this. I kind of wish my dad was behind me right now to smack me. Um, so... We got to get this out. We meet at McDonald's. And he asked, Daddy, will we get lunch? 
I would have the quarter pounder. <laughs> and I said, no, buddy, you're, you're, you're going home with mommy. Mommy's here, and so is your sister. Because she had a daughter from a previous, so he had an older sister as well. Oh, okay. And um, I said, you're going to see, you're going to see your sister, and you're going to see mommy, and and even your grandma's there. And um, he just lost it. No, no, no. This is at the McDonald's parking lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't let me go. Please, please, Daddy. <clears throat> please, Daddy, don't don't let me go. Um what really broke my heart was not just that, but his mother at that time, because she won, was so mean. Um, there were no feelings taken into consideration that day at all. It was just hand them over to me and let go of your dad and get in the car and let's go. And, you know, and I'm standing there as they're getting in the car. When, when do I get to see my son again? We'll let the courts decide that. Well, yeah, but I need to know today. I mean, he's been with me every day. I'm in a McDonald's parking lot saying goodbye to the only thing in the world that I love right now. When do I get him again? And I had to go home with no answer. And I had to sit at home and wait for my lawyer after he had discussed with her lawyer the conditions of when I'd even know when I'd ever get to see him again. So once I found that out, I had to wait days to do it. I couldn't drive up there fast enough to grab him. Um, and from that point on, I made sure that I would never, ever miss a day, a chance, anything to ever see him. Um, even as he got older and started playing sports, I didn't care. Um, three hours, three and a half hours. Uh, give me directions on where that, that ball field is because I'm going to go watch him play. And I would drive three hours to watch an hour and a half game, maybe get a chance to have lunch with him, have to tell him goodbye, drive home. But the important thing was it wasn't for me. I mean, obviously, I wanted to watch my boy play. I wanted to see my boy excel at, at everything that he did, which he does. Everything he touches turns gold. Um, Do you think he should host this podcast then? <laughs> I know. He's, he's too happy. Damn it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's, that disqualifies him. Yeah. So um, I just I really wanted him to know that he could – be on that field and look to the sidelines and see his dad, because I never did. Um, when I played sports, I was lucky if dad would leave the Legion long enough to come show up at the game. I remember there was a bar across from the baseball field when I was in Little League, and I'd see my dad on the sideline, you know, on the side. <laughs> And then maybe an inning would go by, and then I would—I didn't know where it was. Game would end, and I'd go over to my mom. Well, he's cross street at the bar, and so 
those were those were times that I convinced myself I'm not going through sad times. Um, I'm glad my dad did that to me because it taught me to never, ever do that to my son. Uh, so I took everything that my dad ever did to me, and I thanked him for it in my own way. I never said it to him, but in my brain, to be able to deal with the situations of what I went through as a kid with him, uh, wasn't until I got older and had my own son that I, thank you, you know, um, Thank you for being an asshole because it taught me not to be one. Thank you for not always being there when you should have because now I know I always will be. Thank you for smacking me around because now I know I'll never lay a hand on my son. So it was is an incentive for me, and it was the only way that I could deal with those situations um, because I was raised to be very private. You don't wear your heart on your sleeve, mm -hmm. which ironically here I am today. Um, you don't talk about personal matters. You don't talk about your emotions. You deal with them. Um, so it, it helped me in the fact that I could reverse all these negative things that I thought happened to me in life and say, you know what? I'm going to make them a positive and it makes me a better father. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I'm sure in my dad's mind, um, he did a great job of saying in his own mind, I'm never going to lay a hand on a woman. And my dad never did. And I respect and love him for that. Um, it taught me so much quality and respect for women that, I mean, you don't even, growing up with my father, you don't cuss in front of a woman. You don't. Oh, shit. I wish somebody would have told me that. <laughs> I mean, I, I've watched my dad go over to a table full of men before and tell them to hold up every yeah. one of their asses if they don't stop cussing. Um, that's just how he was. Uh, right. And <clears throat> I, I, I think it's really inspiring to hear Again, it's not some sort of character attack or anything just to say, like, this was hard for me. I'm going to try to do better. I mean, that's a, that's a very simplistic way to say it, but it's an admirable, 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 good Jesus, admirable thing. Pardon <laughs> me. And so you said that, you know, he's a teenager. And at that point, um, you know, things are going well with his mom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's fast forward a little bit. Um there, I know you and I have talked about this song. There's a song um, called oh. Unconditional by Arcade Fire. Yes. So yes. Um, uh, I don't have any money, so <laughs> we can't play it. But um, I hope we don't get in trouble for using the name. Oh, we can use the name. Okay. okay. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> give me like a brief synopsis of the song and then what happened when you sent it to your son. I mean, this is years oh, yeah. later now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is actually recently. Um, it's it's a good positive thing. Um, the one thing that my son and I always had was these hour and a half drives to Kankakee and to home for so many years. It was music. Um, and I wanted to introduce him to music. And then his mother was so good about supporting him with that, with 
given him guitar lessons and I started seeing his taste and his love for music, it was something that we could tie in together and work together with and talk together about. And uh, so we've always shared, you know, hey, have you heard this new one? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's great, mm -hmm. great new song. And if anybody's ever heard that song, any father, um, maybe I'm more emotional than most, but I think that any father, any man that loves his child listens to that song. If you can't cry when you hear the end of it, there's something wrong. Or maybe you were raised by Marion as well. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that you're sticking with the Marion. God bless you, man. Because <laughs> John Wayne is not his real name. Um, well, it's despite my father, too. Oh, know, well. So, <laughs> so you sent it to him. What did he say? Yeah, I, I sent the text and I said, hey, you, you've got to hear this song. I mean, uh, I never, probably not until today, will he, and, you know, or whenever he listens to this, uh, will he ever know that I, I cry? I never did in front of him, ever. You never have? No. No. Mm. Not that I can honestly ever remember. Mm -hmm. um, I was always very concerned about what stories his mother might have told him about us. Um, but I left it with, unless he was going to ask me, I wasn't going to bring it up. Enjoy the time. Don't reflect the past. Uh, if you want to know, I'll let you know, but, um, I'm kind of glad that he didn't, didn't want to have that kind of a talk with him about those kind of things, you know, um, because it, it, you feel like even though you had no say so, and it was out of your hands when a divorce happens like that, you feel that you've failed your children. You feel that you... You brought him into the world promising him that you were going to give him this stable home. And now they have to learn to live in two separate homes. And uh, I can't imagine going through that as a child at all, ever. So I don't know where I got onto that. <laughs> uh, no, well, you, <clears throat> sorry, I think you were talking about the, one of the things you're talking about is the connection that you had uh, yeah. with your son with music and then how her, um, how his mom supported him and his guitar definitely, definitely. and he really was excelling. And so, you know, not too long ago, I guess, uh, you heard the song unconditional by arcade fire. You sent it to him. Yeah. Thank um, you for setting me up again. Yeah. Hey, Lost hey, train of thought there. That's I why feel they like pay me big bucks. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what, what was, uh, what was his, what was his, um, response to the song? His, his response brought immediate tears to my eyes because I didn't want to tell him that when I first heard the song and I listened to the words, it was the first thing I ever taught my son about music was that you can either listen to it or you can hear it. It's your choice. But the more that you love it, you're going to start listening and you're going to really listen to it. You're not just going to hear it. You're going to listen to the words and you're going to listen to how they play that that beat and that rhythm and how it all comes together. And that's the true love of music and what it can give you. And I knew that he had that. And uh, there's a great quality that we, we can both share with each other. And it's it's been something that with the distance that we have with each other, we can always talk about music, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you can only go so far with, so how's your life? Mm -hmm. How's your job? You know? But music's there. And, and... 
Music's it, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does so much for us. It, it's medicinal in so many different ways, and no matter what kind of genre music you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I sent that to him, and you you, you got to hear this. And I didn't even roll with the father son connection or what the words were, and he just immediately uh, texts back and said, "Yeah, uh, I have heard that." And as soon as I did, I thought of you, Dad. So, to hear that was such positive reinforcement because, one, you know that your son is still, or your child is, is thinking of you even when they're not there. And even when you can't be there for them, you're still a part of them. And, and no matter what you ever tell yourself, you've got to have that reassurance. You, somebody's got to give it to you or it, it'll eat you up. And when you can get it from your own child, man, dude, those those aren't sad tears anymore. That that is just elation. It's it puts you on a pedestal that you don't feel you belong on if you're humble at all. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I know. I was just going to say, and it's just uh, it, it was a great feeling to know that that he thinks that way, and. Uh, without being the 24-7 dad and there to watch him go through so much in life, you know, prom, dances, getting dressed up, going out on his first date, all the things that we all take for granted mean so much to somebody when they lose those things to experience. Right. And it was so reassuring and wonderful to hear how he can retort with me and talk with me about it that I know that um, I did good. I did really good. Um, My son, (laughs) I would have to say, is the one thing that has made me a better dad. Um. To, to just look at him, there's not a flaw. There's not anything that you could ever say negative about him whatsoever. And despite the fact that I wasn't there for it all, and that's why I do emphasize that I'm so glad his mother did her turnaround and uh, she did a great job with him. And I like to think I was a lot of that too, but... I think without both of us, it wouldn't have been as good as it is. And he is, he is my reassurance that I'm a good dad. Um, yeah, can I ask a question before we, we move on? Um, only one. Thank you. Do you know how I can look like him? Well, you'd have to be reborn. I was um, reborn in Christ. Chiseled out is of that, marble uh-huh. and look like a Greek god, I think. But I don't know if that's possible, Kevin. Yeah, I got a fat, I got a fat, ugly face. Um, okay, so, so, yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome when everybody around you is always like, "Oh God, your son is just incredible." I yeah. I kept him away from Brent because I felt like Brent would just take him. Uh, so okay, so you know, your son grows up. Now you 
that that marriage, unfortunately, as you said, ended ended in divorce, and uh, you didn't. Then you got remarried. Yes, I did, yeah. and uh, um, I didn't want to stop. Um, it wasn't for a glutton of punishment. It was for the positive idea that that um, it's like a second chance. Um, Second chance at even at fatherhood, at, 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 yeah, at everything. Because mm-hmm. uh, the when I met my daughter's mom, um, we were older, you know, thirty two, and uh, wanted. I didn't want to think I was done having children. Um, I still felt like I had kind of, well, not kind of. I felt like I had missed out completely on what I could have been as a father for my son through divorce that maybe this is another opportunity and I can make this one right. You know, um, not only this time, maybe I, this is in my own head. Maybe I need to be a better husband. Maybe I need to do this and that, you know, cause everybody always tells you it takes two. So mm-hmm. I'm not here to blame my children's mothers by any means for it all. Um, I'm just here to say that I thought what I was doing was a good job. I thought I was being the the right man that I was supposed to be. Um, maybe that just wasn't good enough. I don't know. Maybe that's where I've hit my my niche. Is I figured out that at that time, at least, um, this is where I'm at. So that's fair. Um, but you did. You had a daughter. Uh, you mentioned that beautiful daughter. Yeah, and um, so she she was born um, and. Uh, I think that again, it, it it's it's almost an opportunity to hey, what I what I've always wanted since I grew up in this house and had these struggles, and I'm going to be different. And mm-hmm. this is another opportunity. And I have this beautiful child that <clears throat> now I can be the dad to. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, tell us about how what came of that. Uh, uh, sorry, not of your daughter. What came of your the marriage of the marriage? Yeah. yeah. So uh, we ended up uh, getting married, wanted to have a child, and uh, um, welcomed a beautiful, beautiful little girl in the world. Um, Again, it's that feeling of you can't ask for anything better than that. I did it again, and and I remember when she came out, I, I held her just like I had held Nick. And looked her in the eyes and I said, I made your brother this promise and I'm going to make you the same. I'm going to be the best father and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to love you no matter what happens in this world for the rest of my life, if not yours. And again, we go down the same road. Um... This time, instead of a couple of years, it took 12. And by the time my daughter turned 12, her mother, best way I can put it, was not happy with me anymore and found somebody else that made her happy. Um, And I knew about it. And that was the struggle is knowing what was going on, but I couldn't that time bring myself to ever feel like I was going to fail again. Um, no, no pointing fingers, no faults. It was just in my head that I was given this opportunity. She 
We brought her into this world. I made her this promise, and it's being taken away from me again. And that one, as hard as it was letting go of my son that day at McDonald's, to sit on a couch in your living room and tell your 12-year-old daughter with her mom there that we're just not unfortunately meant to be together anymore. And as soon as we said, you know, you, you start rambling, you know, we love you and it's not your fault. And, you know, you want to stress that to your children. You don't ever want them to feel it's because of them because it never is. It's always because of you or what you've done. And um, as soon as the D word came out and we said divorce, that again, I, I, I wouldn't ever want to have to compare which was worse, but those are two of the worst days that I've ever had in my entire life that revolve around two people that gave me the happiest days of my life when they came in the world. And to feel like something is out of your hands and out of your control, and it's your children. It just, it rips you. It, it, take, it strips you of everything that you could ever feel as strength, as confidence, as a man or as a parent. And um, I just remember her sitting there just crying, crying, and um, just reassuring her, you know, we're going to make this work and it's going to be okay. And the only positive that I can say from that is that her mother and I remained close as far as area. So mm. it wasn't hard for Sarah to have to get in a car and drive. She didn't have to go through what Nick did with that. But it's to not take anything less away from that. It's still, if a child has a five-minute drive or a three-hour drive, it still sucks, you know? Um it's nothing that you ever want to do, but um, to have that, that taken away again, I, I just spent, I think, looking back, I probably almost two years of staying with her mother, hoping that her mother would change because I did not want to accept divorce ever again. I did not want to accept not the idea of divorce that I couldn't personally handle it, but the idea of divorce that I brought a child into the world and I'm giving her another broken marriage, another broken home. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. So even the nights that, that my ex would leave and I knew exactly where she was going and I knew exactly what was going to happen and what she was doing, I looked the other way, ignored it and just tried to beg and pray that it would change, and it didn't. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, there we were on the couch telling her that we failed you. Um, at least I, f I felt I did. I mean, her mother didn't say it. I, don't, I can't speak for her. Maybe she has those feelings, but I just felt that I failed again. Um, 
you, you felt that you failed just because, um, and I'm trying to clarify this, um, because you're like, well, I, this time I'm going to be in a marriage. I'm going to, I'm going to raise a child and it's going to be the, the, uh, idyllic idea that I have sure. and it didn't work out. And so you, you assigned failure to yourself. Exactly. Um, everybody has values. Everybody has things that, that keeps them who they are, whether it be the pride or, or a specific word that they use. And for me, it was raising my two children to always know that if you said that I'm going to promise you something, don't break it. Don't ever break it. And if you don't feel that you can fulfill that promise, then don't use the word. And here I was raising my children with that belief while still looking back, knowing the day that they were born, I told them, I promise you. And so that's where it hurt because I broke a promise to both of them. And so I felt like I had really failed in that aspect because I'm trying to get them to live by these morals of never lying and promising and, and being there for people. And I'm just so glad that both my children are, are as amazing as they are and incredible as they are because I can't imagine how wonderful they could have been without broken homes. So the thing that keeps me going um, despite still shedding tears occasionally, uh, to keep it away from ever feeling sorry for myself is to always know that, man, if my children can be this strong as they are right now and love me as much as they do and show no animosity or anger, or any hatred towards me for what, what happened in the past, um, I did something right, mm -hmm. you know? So, I think it, if I may, so I got I'm, that going for me, yeah, which is nice. If I may editorialize real fast before we get to the epilogue, where the real sad shit happens, I think you've done more than enough, Sean. You you've shared a lot today, like a lot, and uh, you've been honest and humble, uh, to, and um, it's it's really been wonderful. Now to the most horrific thing that ever happened to you. You met my sister, and. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, by the way, I just want to say that it's been peak my sister today because I've seen her weep and then I've seen her and I've looked over and I'm like, are you asleep? Which is <laughs> so her. Um, so we also did not pack nearly enough tissues. Um, here, here, have my cliff bar wrapper. Okay, so you met, uh, joking aside, you met my sister about eight years ago? Yeah, right around eight years ago. Um, I had been single and, and decided at that time that um, my daughter was doing well. My son was on his own, um, but I'm not going to do this again. I'm not, you know... Um, I'm just there for them, and uh, I didn't want anybody or anything, um, to be honest and personal as I can be for two years. Um, I wasn't with anybody, uh, and then I, I met your sister, and the smile got me. The immediate smile. Um, 
the happiness, the constant um, positive reinforcement without even having to give it, just having it. It's just part of her personality. Um, she's addictive. Uh, she can go into a room, and I don't care what kind of mood that room's in, and she can turn that room around into everybody laughing and smiling. Um, I would tell you to this day, I, I, and I say this with the utmost confidence, anybody that would ever meet my wife right now, if you would walk away saying you didn't like her, you're an idiot. <laughs> it's impossible. I guess I'm not. an idiot. So, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, And I, I think I admired her most, Kevin, because I like doctors. Well, that's weird because um, she's not a doctor. Well, she did pay me to say that. Yeah, of course she did. Well, I don't know how she could afford that because she's not a doctor. <laughs> I will say this as we're wrapping up here. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you're exactly right about Kelly. I think that, um, you know, all the bullshit joking I do on the show and in real life. Um, one of the reasons that I have uh, some qualities I think that are better parts of me. Uh, my attempts to be kind, uh, actual having um, compassion for other people, that, that all stems, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it stems from my sister. Uh, and um, you're right, man. She walks into a room and everybody's like, oh boy, call the police. But uh, <laughs> she walks into the room and everybody lights up. Yeah. And uh, I've just been following that my whole life. I used to just follow her around everywhere I went. I would do whatever the fuck she said. And um, kind of like I do now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just uh just uh she's an amazing person. Um so to wrap up, Sean, is there anything else that you would like to impart? Um anything in just a final thought before we kind of wrap up that you'd like to share? Yeah. Um nobody out there knows me. Uh you do, obviously. Uh if there's anything that that anybody's learned from me knowing me is that I've never worn my heart on my sleeve. Um, I've always kept all of this in. Uh, I owe you a deep, deep uh, amount of gratitude for not just not necessarily convincing me, but reassuring me that that coming on here would be a good idea. Um, I've spent fifty-two years of my life never talking about my feelings, uh, never expressing the things that I've gone through in life. Because um, I always felt that if I told a story about my father or my son or the divorces, that I didn't want sympathy and I didn't want people to think that that's what I was looking for. Um, so to come on here and to finally let it out and to do it through tears even in front of you guys, um, I can't thank you enough because it's, it's allowed me to feel a lot better about this whole subject. Uh, like I say, as traumatic as it was, I think it was more traumatic for me than I ever realized. Um, back again, meeting meeting Kelly, I didn't know my wife, Kelly, your sister. I didn't know anything about anxieties. I didn't know uh, how to handle these situations. And she's really, really been my doctor for all of that. <laughs> all right, so that's an honorific. Just want to be clear. And also, uh, she knows about anxiety because she learned from the best. Exactly. Um, yes. 
Uh, and you, you know, know, I have a lot of great qualities in that. That's right. <laughs> Sean, sincere thank you for coming on, for talking about this stuff. It's very apparent, even for people who can't see, like I can see you, um, how difficult some of this was um, and how honest you were. Um, I'm genuinely proud of you. This is not an easy fucking thing to do at all. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I, I, I really do feel like a number of people who will listen to this um, will find solace in, in your story. So thank you for being so brave and generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I, I'll say to everybody else um, out there, the same thing I usually say at the end of the episode. One thing I try to remind myself is there's always room for grace and kindness, even with yourself. And um, I spend most days failing at that and um, trying to be kind to myself so I can be kind to others. And I think, um, pardon me, you know, there's just always room for grace and kindness. And now uh, let's wake Kelly up and uh, and then we'll go. All right. All right. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you, Sean. And uh, thank you, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time on Sad Times. We promise it'll be sadder next time. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Good Jesus, man. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.